I think that as human beings, we do a really good job of being curious with everyone else, mm. right? As a therapist, I'm curious with everyone else, but I don't think we do a great job of being curious with self, Yeah. right? We, we end up coming seventh or eighth on the list. One of the things that we're, we're taught in this life is to be critical thinkers. I think that's important, but I think it's even more important to be a critical questioner because that takes it another step. Because if I'm a critical thinker, I can hold that critical thought to myself and never share it. Mm. But if I'm a critical questioner, that means I'm gonna ask questions. I'm gonna engage with self and others that I'm thinking about, that I'm curious about, that can open up opportunity that would not normally be there. Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast, where we enter into honest conversations about pursuing a more centered life, rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting in to who we truly are. I'm your host, Miles Edcox. I'm your host, Lindsay Nobles. I'm your host, Mackenzie Vogt. And I'm your host, Hannah Warren. Hey friends, today I am so excited to introduce you to psychotherapist, Dr. Corey Yeager. This conversation was absolutely incredible. First, I got to bring on one of my favorite team members, Debbie Carroll, our Vice President of Entertainment and Specialized Services, as my co-host. And the two of us just loved our time with Dr. Corey. Second, Dr. Corey is a brilliant clinician and a really awesome human. So it was just a really fun conversation. We got into a beautiful exploration about cultivating a relationship with ourselves, leaning into curiosity, and the importance of being someone who intentionally seeks out courageous conversation with ourselves and others. He's best known for his appearance on Harry and Oprah's The Me You Can't See on Apple TV. Dr. Corey Yeager merges his two passions, athletics and therapy, as the psychotherapist for the NBA's Detroit Pistons. Dr. Yeager's research and practice focuses on unpacking racialized systems and structures in mental health. He has facilitated courageous conversations across the country with public and private organizations, and he's also the author of the incredibly practical and insightful book, How Am I Doing? 40 Conversations to Have with Yourself. It's on sale now. I know that you're going to have a lot of practical takeaways from this conversation, because I did. And I want to let you in on a little secret. I have been doing one practice he shares most mornings, and it has been a game changer in setting my day off in the right mood. So without further ado, let's meet Dr. Corey. Welcome, Dr. Yeager. I'm so excited to be chatting with you today, and I'm also excited to be bringing in Debbie Carroll, our VP of Entertainment and Specialized Services here at OnSite, to co-host and join the conversation. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. It is is indeed a pleasure to join both of you today. This is going to be fun. Yes, I agree. Thanks so much, Mackenzie. This is going to be great fun. Looking forward to this conversation. Yes. Well, Dr. Corey, I would just love for people to get a little bit of glimpse of who you are. Um, What I know of you is that you have come from like a sports background and then went into psychotherapy. And we always say here at OnSite that no one ends up in the helping profession by accident. And so what did that journey look like for you? I like to say that if you're in the helping profession, that means you probably have been doing it for many, many years before you even got into the profession. Yeah, that was the case. That was the case for me that I think that I've kind of been a family friend therapist 25, 35 years ago, way before I got interested in psychotherapy. But found my way back into kind of the academic world Mm -hmm. after being a former athlete 
playing football, thinking that I was going to make millions of dollars being a football player. I got to the Division One level and played really well, um, but didn't end up being like an all pro, making it to the pros, making millions of bucks. So yeah. moved to Minneapolis and met my wife who had prodded me to go back to school because when I was in college, I didn't graduate because I thought I was going to be a millionaire. Mm. So why would you go to class if you're going to be a millionaire? Yeah. Um, my wife prodded me, go back to school so the boys know that we both have our degree. So finally I did. I went back and fell in love with the world of psychology. So mm. got my BA um, and then ended up getting my master's in psychotherapy. And then something just kept saying, well, there's this PhD. It's the last layer out there. So why not go get it? Ended up getting my PhD from the University of Minnesota and have just been deeply in love with the therapeutic realm and working primarily in the African-American community, but also in the athletic realm in the last few years. Um, so it's kind of been a circuitous route that I yeah. arrived where I am, but I absolutely love it. Um, and each stumble was a good stumble. I stumbled, I got up and something in front of me was beautiful. So that's kind of the way I, I made it to where I am today. I'm intrigued with that, the notion that as a, as a pro athlete and then realizing your gifting was really in the therapy world, how did you come to that realization? You said you were going back to college on your wife's urging, but how did you really come to that? I, I think oftentimes our, we don't find our gifts. Our gifts find us. Uh, yeah. And my gift, the, the gift of psychotherapy and being supportive in the psychological therapeutic realm really just came to find me. I was working at Ford Motor Company and they were closing the plant here in St. Paul that I worked at. Mm -hmm. And one of the packages that they were giving was that you could, there were two packages. You take $100,000 cash and go away or you could go back to school. Well, my wife had prodded me, so I had just gotten my BA when they said they were gonna close. So they said, well, we'll pay for you to get a master's. So my yeah. wife and I sat down and I said, I don't know, master's, I don't have any idea what I want to get. So we talked through it. And when I kept coming back to, well, what do I like to do? Well, I love talking to people. I don't mm -hmm. know, maybe a therapist. So it kind of found me. So I didn't, I don't think I was looking or searching for um, that avenue, but that gifting kept popping up in my life. And if it keeps showing up, what we have to do is pay attention and not ignore, right? So I didn't ignore it. It, it kept popping up and... And it worked out. I love that. Yeah, not ignoring because it's sometimes it's easy to say, well, wait a minute, is this really it? But that really being open to hearing and receiving that that the universe or whomever is telling you something. Because I think it's, it is, Debbie, to your point, it is oftentimes easier to just kind of shirk it off and say, well, I'm not, well, I'm not supposed to do that. We almost convince ourselves, even though that gift keeps showing up, we convince ourselves for some reason that we're not supposed to, we're not supposed to do it. And I won't, I won't go on deeply about this, but there is a, a existentialist philosopher named Jean-Paul Sartre. And Sartre came up with a concept that he called bad faith, mm. meaning that we tell ourselves multiple small untruths and lies all the time. Well, I can't do anything else. Well, I can't, I'm not supposed to do that, but we're telling our untruths to ourselves. So well, the book, How Am I Doing That I Just Am Coming Out With, is really about unfolding and rediscovering who we are and beginning to tell ourselves new truths, mm. that we can tell truths to ourselves just as easy as we can tell untruths. That is so yeah. true. So true. I find it really interesting that, 
you even like started to challenge some of those truths because I think it would be really easy to just kind of settle in and say like, this is what my life is. And you probably had lots of obstacles around you. You had a family and you had a well set path and career. But what I would also make up is that you are the type of person that you're at a party and you end up like with one person in the room and they start saying, I've never told anyone this, but um, yes. I have people in my life yes. like that. And so it's, it's interesting that you started to listen to that and that there were even things outside of like a vocational realm, um, just in the way that you operate in life and people are attracted to you. I love that. That just that thought of being in a party and just the way you describe that, Mackenzie, I have been in so many situations where I end up saying, I'm talking to someone and they tell me, I've never said this to anyone, <laughs> but for some reason I want to share it with you. This is yeah. the gifting working. That's the gifting at play, right? So if we lean mm-hmm. into that as opposed to leaning away, then we get to use our gift not only for our benefit, but for those around us. And I think that's critically important. Yeah. Your new book talks a lot about the importance of curiosity. And so I just wonder, like, how have you seen leaning into curiosity benefit you in your life? And why is it important that we embrace curiosity when we live in a world that really would be more more pulling us to certainty? Yeah. So curiosity, I think, is really important. I think that as human beings, we do a really good job of being curious with everyone else. Mm, right? Yeah. As a therapist, I'm curious with everyone else, but I don't think we do a great job of being curious with self. Yeah. Right? We, we end up coming seventh or eighth on the list. All right. So I have to be curious with my wife and my kids and my friends. And, and then I'll come in ninth or tenth on the list of who I should be curious with. I think that's absolutely backwards. That I should, before I can do anything, be curious with myself, mm. better understand who I am. Because if I better understand myself, That means I get to show up in the world a better version of of myself. Um, So not only do I benefit from being curious with self, but those around me benefit from my own curiosity with self. Um, So finding ways in which to ask little questions of self and not only ask, but answer. Right. So it doesn't, I I think one of the things that we're, we're taught in this life is to be critical thinkers. I think that's important. But I think it's even more important to be a critical questioner because that takes it another step. Because if I'm a critical thinker, I can hold that critical thought to myself and never share it. But if I'm a critical questioner, that means I'm going to ask questions. I'm going to engage with self and others that I'm thinking about, that I'm curious about, that can open up opportunity that would not normally be there. It makes me think Debbie and I were talking a little bit before we hopped on this call with you. Just we both kind of read through your book and are excited to chat with you. And one of the questions you ask in your book is who knows you best? And we both like it's kind of a bait and switch because it's who do you know who knows you best? And the answer should be you. you but I be. did not land on me. And so can you yeah, speak a little see, bit more to that? <laughs> yeah. See, most people don't land on self. Right. That if I ask, I've asked that question of thousands of people. And probably just a handful answer, well, I know myself better than anyone else. They usually say, my best friend, my mom, my significant other, someone else that they're really close with and who really knows them well. But if we think about that question, that I think about my wife and my my mom. My mom just moved in with us a few months ago. My mom knows a lot of things about me that my wife doesn't know and she'll never know. And my wife knows things about me that my mom will never know. But guess what? My friends know things that neither my wife nor my mom will ever know. 
That means everyone in my life has a portion of my story. Mm. But the only person that has a full version of my story is me. I'm the only one. So I know myself better than anyone else. So if I continue to understand my, that, that curiosity, lean into that curiosity and even get to know me better again, and I, I'll say this ad nauseum, that then I show up in the world a better version. Mm-hmm. And that's what I, I would hope that we're all about is that I want to show up in all my spaces a better version of Corey today than I was yesterday. And the version today that you're talking to I better be better tomorrow because of the conversation I had with you. I'll be better tomorrow, right? So every day we get a little bit better, 1% better every day. Which is such a beautiful sentiment, and it certainly resonates with me around just trying to be the very best versions of ourselves that we can be. And that's, that's somewhat, that's the terminology that I use to describe on-site. You know, it's it's using eyes of the world, trying to become a better versions of ourselves. Mm. I'm I'm curious about your curiosity, if I may ask that. When, when you became intrigued or, or curious with the notion of just asking these questions, because the, the book, I'm really excited to dig in more and to also ask those questions amongst my family. Mm-hmm. I think that will be just such a fun exercise and really thought-provoking for all of us. Um, but So tell me more about how this, how this concept came to mind and how the book t- came to fruition. Yeah, so I'll, I'm gonna hit that, but let me touch on something real quick too, Debbie, that you said. I think the, a word that we utilize a lot is that we're trying to be better. We're trying to do mm. something. I don't, I see, I, and, and this comes from my curiosity too. I don't think that we should ever use the word try. Either we mm. do or we do not. Good I'm point. Gonna be better, I'm gonna be a better version of myself. I'm going to be curious. I'm not gonna try to be curious. I'm going to be more curious mm-hmm. about myself and those that I mm-hmm. love around me, right? So I'm going to lean in. I'm going to take the passivity, even in my language, away and assert myself. This is what I'm going to do. Now, everyone else may not agree that that's what I should do, but I do. So I'm going to move in that way. But in terms of that question around curiosity, I think that I've always been a really curious person, right? Mm-hmm. Even it goes back, I, I write about my grandmother, who was easily the most wise woman or person that I ever met in the world. I don't know that I'll ever meet anyone as wise as her. She had a sixth grade education, but wisdom is the application of knowledge, right? So if I get knowledge, it doesn't do me any good to just have it. I must then apply it. So the application thereof is what wisdom is. So she pulled me to the side when I was 10 years old and said, son, I, I want to tell you something, that you have a gift. And you're not going to really understand it, but I'm telling you that I've seen it in you because I haven't. I said, and she and, I, and she said, and the gift is this word, son, discernment. Mm. So that's what you have. You have the gift of discernment. Well, it serves okay. me quite well as a therapist that if I have a discerning spirit, that I'm always observing, paying attention in spaces that others may not, and that I also am being, I, I'm, I'm attempting to always be predictive. I'm watching a situation, saying, I'm not going to tell anybody. But I bet this is what happens with them. I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to watch. She <laughs> taught me that at a young age. So when I talk about in the book, we have to oftentimes understand better the roots of a situation. Mm. If you grab an apple off of a tree and you take a bite and it's bitter, why be mad at the apple? It's, a, it's, it's just part of the process of that root system of that tree. We want to dig into the root system to better understand why it's bitter and if we want to change it. 
That's what my grandmother taught me many, many years ago when she talked about discernment. That's where the root of this curiosity for me was born and seeded. Mm. I love that. What a beautiful story and what a beautiful gift and opportunity for connection with this woman that it sounds like you, it was so beloved um, and loved. That's wonderful. My granny. (laughs) I think a lot of this conversation is just reminding me of, you talked about, we know we have to have people that know us and some people know a little bit about us. And this person knows this part of our story. This person knows our story, but we hold so much of our own story. And it makes me um, think about, I heard someone once in kind of living in the public sphere, you know, like a an author, a speaker, and that. And she said, she talked about the difference between private and secret. And as far as it, uh, as it goes to like letting people in your life and also how much you share and all of that. And she said, I don't have anything that's secret, but I do have a private life and I have a public life. Mm-hmm. Like someone doesn't know everything about me, but somebody knows everything, if that makes sense. Like not one person knows everything. So I just would love to hear a little bit about the work that you do with people who are public facing um, and helping them wade through one, finding community that makes sense, uh, getting curious about themselves, doing the mental health work that, and emotional health work that we know is essential, but also is not always available or praised or rewarded in that type of space. Yeah. So that's a big, so, I know that's a loaded question, just an easy question. No, no, no. no I, I love that question. So in my work in the NBA, dealing, working with our players, especially, we talk about that public facing space. That's who mm-hmm. they are. So major names that kids know and people know and they look up to. In the book, I write about the difference in a role model and a real model. Mm, I'm not yeah. a believer. I'm not a deep believer in role models. I think it's okay, um, but role models are really untouchable. I can read about a role model, Michael Jordan. I can read about him. I'm probably never ever meet him, um, and I can admire from afar. But a real model is someone that I can look at and engage and call and sit at the feet of and learn from um, when I need them. So having these real models in our life, in our life, I think is much more important than the role model. It doesn't diminish the fact that role models are important, but, but I see real models as being much more important than that. Um, so working with players who are really role models for a lot of people, it's really a tricky juxtaposition yeah. for them to want to have a private life and they have to really work hard to keep portions of their life private. Right. To your point, Mackenzie, um, that's a fight and a battle that they 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 endeavor upon really consistently. Um, So we talk about that a lot. And one of the things that I tell them, my job is not to fix anything or change anything in your life as a therapist. It's not my task. My task is to be curious with you and to point things out that may be patterns in your story. If you tell enough stories over and over, there'll be a pattern that emerges. And my job is to capture that pattern. And, and make sure that you know, hey, I've recognized something. We've talked four times, and every time we talk, you bring up X, Y, or Z. Did you realize that? No, I didn't realize that. Now there's an opportunity for awareness that has just, uh, just unfolded. And that's really what therapy is about, is to say, oh, my gosh, I did not realize that that's what I was doing, or I didn't realize that I was saying that. But now I'm aware of it, and now I get to do something with that. Right. Mm. That, that newfound awareness or as we would say in therapy, the aha moments that can be elicited through that curiosity 
think is most important. So working with my players is really no different than working with a client that is not outward facing, that yeah. has a full-blown private life. Um, it just is a, kind of a different version. That's the best description I can get. Well, and I'd, I'd love to, with the division that we're, we're building um, or have launched, actually, we, we recognize, and, and I don't know that many do, that public-facing professionals have unique occupational hazards um, associated with being in the, the public eye. And hence, you know, teams like yours um, who hire people, talented people like yourself, to help support them. Can you talk a little bit about you know, and what those things are and why those why it's more challenging to get the support that they may need and and why teams will invest, which I think is just amazing that they'll invest in people like you to to help keep their their teams healthy and well. Yeah, so that I think that term occupational hazard is really fitting when we think about when I think about the players that I work with yeah. um, because, First and foremost, the NBA has done a really good job of recognizing that the importance of mental wellness with the players is 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 always really been important. But just as of late, the last few years, have they really understood, begun to understand the importance of having a support mechanism for the players? But in terms of occupational hazard, I just think about our players saying, "I don't want to divulge a lot of." things that I'm struggling with because it could impact my contract negotiation, Mm. right? So if I talk about struggles with this, that, or the other, and that gets back to the folks that I have to negotiate my next $200 million contract with, they may be able to pull that out and say, well, you know, we're not interested in giving you that much because you said you were struggling with X, Y, and Z, so we'll cut it in half. And if you can prove that you get through Right. So that occupational hazard of them sharing fully can really get in the way. Part of my work is to build a version and level of trust and confidentiality to let players know what we discuss is for us. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to a GM. I'm not going to a head coach discussing what we have touched on because it's for us. Um, Mm -hmm. And my task is to hold that for our conversation only. And that takes time. People don't build trust overnight, but you can lose it very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so working through that uh, quote-unquote occupational hazard is not easy, but it's the, it's the task I have in my work, and I absolutely love it. That's wonderful. And that's so true, I think, for a variety of different professions. It could be athletes, a, a pastor at a major church, just you know those occupations that are more forefront Mm-hmm. Um, which can impact so much more than than you know, going to see a therapist when things are when things are rough. And we all we all hit potholes in life, as I like to say, and that that we all need help at some point in time, um, and to have a helping hand. And so it's wonderful that the teams are um, investing yeah. in people like you. And I, I'll also add, it, you know, the pandemic has been rough on everyone, yes. um, and yet you mentioned really in the past several years that this, this type of support has been more available and that teams are recognizing this. What do you think's changed? You know, I think it's generational shift. Mm. That generational cohorts will move with almost uh, an, an unknown or a subconscious mission, right? A cohort of 20 to 25-year-olds, without really speaking about it, will, will almost have a mission. 
And I believe that part of that younger version, that younger generational cohort, their mission is to say, no, we need this and we're going to demand it. Right. Which is different than generations before Mm -hmm. that we almost knew that there were struggles, but we weren't going to demand because there was a version of us that said, or we were taught, don't talk about that stuff. No one needs to know that. Right. We're just going to keep that within in-house or whatever may be the case. I think these younger generations don't see it necessarily that way. We're going to talk about it and you better give us a space to talk about it. And it's not going away. I think that really has been a push um, that that younger generation has, has endeavored upon to the benefit of that therapeutic support um, being more mainstream or more normalized. I love that's that. Good. I think that's so true. So true. And I think in the athletic realm, I can think of a couple of key athletes who have stood out and said, okay, we're going to actually talk about this. We're going to bring this conversation. We're going to destigmatize it. I think about Simone Biles and her performance at the Olympics and saying, no, I'm going to talk about my mental health struggles and how this is impeding me, impacting me. And, you know, I think there's like, there's been so many of these bigger figures who have stepped forward. And I think using their privilege and position in a way to get the access and the availability and the conversation for people that are behind them. Right. And so we're continuing to stand on the shoulders of giants who have, who have been willing to do that and say, I'll go first and, and talk about my struggles at the risk of potentially harmful financial, uh, you know what I mean? Costs for sure. And, and I mean, someone, someone like Simone Biles is a representative of that generational shift. Yeah. Yeah. But we also can realize that, but even before the generational shift, there were folks like Muhammad Ali that were standing on yeah. heavy-duty civil rights movement um, spaces, but the generational space around them wasn't necessarily open to that yet. So they were almost 50 years ahead of their time, right? So mm. realizing that this is not new territory, but I think the difference is that the generations that surround these athletes like Simone Biles will stand with her and say, that's right. And we all are behind her and she can do that. And businesses, you better get behind her or we'll boycott you, right? That all yeah. of that good, bad, or indifferent, right. it is yeah. now pushing an agenda that is about normalization of this psychological therapeutic realm. Mm. Well, in some, I would imagine too, your the the folks that you work with are not all from this from the generation that is really pushing this forward. How do you break through some of that? Because I do still believe there is some stigma around. You know, I'm going to keep my the the dark parts to myself, and I don't want people to know that my wife and I are struggling. Or mm-hmm. I may have developed an addiction during the pandemic, or or whatever the case may be. How do you, and I know you mentioned relational and, and trust and building that trust, but what are some th- some things that you could recommend to people that maybe are struggling in that that way, just reaching out? Yeah. yeah, I think that sometimes we can have those huge figures like Simone Biles that will stand in the gap and say, hey, I'm struggling and, and push forward that agenda. But I think just as, if not more important, are the day-to-day people that those athletes are engaging with. So I will, I oftentimes talk about my own struggles. My wife and I have struggles and we've been to therapy and um, my sons and, and the struggles that they've had. And I had a son that has had some struggles with depression and mental wellness issues. I talk about those things because that is another process of normalization yeah. that 
that they can hear, oh, other people are having that. And if you hear people talk about their struggles, oftentimes you'll say, dang, I'm, that's very similar to what I'm dealing with. Yeah. So I'm not alone in this. That uh, a phrase that I oftentimes use is that we're not unique in our suffering. Mm-hmm. We're not. We feel, we many times it feels like we're unique and we're the only ones dealing with this, but that's not true. And that isolation gives gives space to anxiety to breed itself. It mm. gives space to depression to breed itself. It seeks depression and anxiety seek isolation. Mm-hmm. Man, if I if they can get a hold of you and isolate you, they'll breed themselves. So we want to push back on that isolation. We want that we want to normalize it. We want to tell people that it's okay and that they can hear stories of other struggles that they may be able to connect to in a way that they may be able then to share what they're, what they're struggling with um, as a way to move through, to and through those issues. So true. Sharing it, it deflates the power. Yes, yes. And so it's like, oh, okay. Yes. Other people have experienced this too, right? I'm not alone. And the, and the pandemic in and of itself called for isolation. Mm-hmm. Called for social isolation. For If you think back to the beginning, we didn't know what the heck was going on with it. And everyone was isolated. Yeah. Well, you could imagine if you were on the cusp of struggling with depression or anxiety, and then all of a sudden you were pulled away from society and your social network mm-hmm. and told you can't really be around anyone. You have to hold up. Then that breeding ground got strong almost universally across the world. It almost depression and anxiety almost got to giggle like, oh, mm-hmm. yes, that's exactly what we've been waiting for. So yeah. now we're, we're trying to come out of that, but it's a whole process because we've got people that have been isolated and have the, the, their deep roots of anxiety and depression have taken hold. So now we have to fight against all of that work to get, get us even get us back to ground zero, mm-hmm. um, which is a lot of work, but it's the work that, that we've been charged with. That's so true. I don't, um, so true. And so much anxiety, so much angst after mm-hmm. the depression. We were talking about that earlier today too, just, the heaviness of the world, the world in my world feels heavy mm-hmm. and it's not anything unusual. It's just the world. And our world feels heavy and we have resources. Exactly. Yes. Right. So what happens to the folks that we know don't have the resource to really work through that? Mm-hmm. And then they've been in certain communities told, now nah, don't be talking to people about yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So if we're feeling heavy, what are the people that are not rich with resource and opportunity mm. feeling, right? It's just an, another layer of struggle. There's so many layers that we're having to peel back. It's like an onion, you peel back and there's another layer. So we have to peel that and now there's another layer. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to this conversation with Dr. Corey. I loved getting to pull our VP of Entertainment and Specialized Services, Debbie Carroll, in as my co-host today. As she mentioned, Debbie is heading up a brand new division of OnSite with a suite of offerings to support those who work in public-facing professions. OnSite Entertainment helps provide customized concierge care to help people reach their fullest potential. It's no secret that life in the public eye creates high levels of stress, anxiety, and burnout. And for years, OnSite has been a trusted resource for those individuals. We have long supported the emotional needs of public-facing professionals with our workshops, intensives, and residential programs. 
You can check out all that this new division is up to at onsite-entertainment.com. Now, back to the interview. But you were kind of speaking about peeling back the layers, and I think it would be short-sighted in this conversation to just say, like, everyone has the same access and everyone should be pursuing emotional wellness and mental health when there are systems, cultures, you know what I mean? Like so many things that have held people back. And so I think about the work that you say you've worked predominantly in the African-American community. And I'd love to hear a little bit about the normalization and the destigmatization that you have to face in that community. We've had other um, therapists of color on this podcast who have said like, yeah, you, we have more work and we have to normalize the conversation and then create a safe space. And especially over the last couple of years. And so I would love to just candidly hear a little bit about your experience in that space and working um, with the African-American community? Yeah, I would say, so being here in Minneapolis is home for me, and it really has been the epicenter of racial unrest in our country yeah. over the last number of years. So I think about George Floyd and the murder of George Floyd. Yeah. And in that moment, I think this is a critically important um, concept to think about. I think what race, what we've done is decontextualize race. So if we take context away, it's easy to say, hey, that group's got to pull themselves up by the bootstraps. Mm. Because we can put, if we pull context away, it's easy to say that. Yeah. But if we contextualize race, for instance, when the African-American community watched that video of George Floyd, that was not a moment in time. There was 400 years of history that yeah. came down on that moment. So that's contextual. So recognizing that the therapeutic endeavor is really about the broadening and deepening of context. Um, mm. So that is a struggle. The stigma that goes along with engagement of therapy and the resources in the African-American community is stigmatized. It's a struggle, but it doesn't diminish the fact that we have work to do and we have to put our head down and go about that work every day. Exactly. So for me, that's what I see it as is, my job is to put my head down and go to work. Yeah. So my wife says, oh my, honey, I know you're tired and everybody is calling and they want to talk to you and they want your support. But I almost say, think of it as, that's what I was charged with. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to hang my head. I'm going to go about the work, right? Yeah. Until, until it's over, then I'm going to go about the work. I'm not going to whine about it. I'm not going to be... Um, dismissive or any of that. I'm just going to go about the work. And there's a number of people in, in my realm that are doing just that, that we don't talk about a lot, but I think it's just the fact of going about the work every day in bite-sized approaches. Mm -hmm. And I love that, that, you know, the, that sentiment too around, I was, you know, this is what I signed up for basically. Yeah. Like this is what I, this is what I do. And I'm going right. to show up every day. Yeah, every day, every day, yeah. I'm going to show up and I'm going to be tired, but I, that's just what it is. I'm supposed to be tired if I'm doing it right. If I'm not, if I wasn't tired, then I would probably wasn't doing it right. So mm. I, I see tired as being an indicator of I'm doing something right. Just like I'm doing work worth doing. Yes. Just like yeah. pain should be an indication of growth. Mm. That anytime you're growing, you're probably painful. Yeah. So if, it, if you have that pain, that if we can reframe that pain and say, okay, what is it telling me this? Where am I growing? Yeah. Oh, so I'm growing. My sons used to come to my room with, and they're all big. I'm 6'3", 300, and all my sons are big. So they used to come to my room and they were nine, 10 years old. Said, dad, my knees are killing me. And I would always say, 
So you want to be big like dad, right? Yeah, I do. Well, that pain is saying you're going you're growing. So lean mm-hmm. into it. It's okay. It hurts. It's part of the gig, but it's telling you that you're growing. So take it as an indication that you're getting big and you'll be big like dad. And then it made the, the pain a little easier to deal with. I think life is the same way. Yeah. If there's purpose in the pain, I think mm-hmm. it, it makes it more palatable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I love the idea of not taking out context from, you know, especially the conversation we were talking about, not taking context out of African-Americans watching George Floyd, but also not taking context out of the therapeutic experience and how much that is what it is, is, is giving you fuller context into who you are, all of your experiences and how they formed you to who you are. Um, you talk about narrative solutions focused therapy. Is that kind of what that is in a crux is giving yourself full context of your story and understanding of where you come from and the things that might be impacting you, even if it's not from your own lived experience, it's from a larger generational lived experience. Yes. So the best way, so I say I am a narrative solution based, solution focused therapist. And the best way I can describe it, so I'm a metaphorical therapist. I use metaphor. I love a it. Lot. Yes. And the best metaphor I can use for uh, narrative therapy, solution-focused therapy is, so you're going to have a party. You're at your house. You're going to have a party later that evening. And it's 1 o'clock in the afternoon. You look at them, and and your lawn has dandelions everywhere. And it looks horrible. Mm. So what do you do? You mow. Oh, my God, let's mow. You mow the lawn. You go about the day. You have your party. People come over, and they say, oh, my God, your, your lawn looks beautiful. You take the compliment. Thank you. We work hard on And then what's back four days later? Dandelions. Dandelions, Why? yeah. Why are they back? Because you didn't impact the root system. Mm-hmm. Narrative therapy is about the root system of our struggles and our issues. Where I would say like cognitive behavioral therapy is really about more of the surface. We want to mow the dandelions off. And every time they pop up, we're going to mow. I like the work to, to get dirty down in the yard and digging into the root system of the dandelions and getting rid of them because I don't want them anymore. This is the same as the struggles that we have in life. We don't want them anymore. And we have to then dig into the root system to better understand where they came from, how they got here, and why we don't want them anymore. Then we can get rid of them for good as opposed to just cutting the top off and letting them grow back. That's kind of how I describe that narrative approach. That's really good. And it's a both and approach. Yeah. Both and. Right, yeah. the cognitive behavioral, that immediate, hey, let's get you some help immediate right now, extremely important. Mm-hmm. And that is for other therapists to do because I'm not yeah. great at that. You're not doing that, yeah. I'm better at the, hey, that we're going to take some time and dig into this root system and look at it and discuss it and say, do we want it anymore? We don't, you don't want it anymore. All right, we're going to have to really, we're going to have to dig even deeper pull that up, and then make sure it doesn't come back anymore. That's the work I do. So it's both and, both be both being critically important. Um, I just recognize what I'm better at. Yeah, that's good. Love that. I, may we go back to the book? Tell me, it's, you know, how am I doing 40 conversations to have with yourself? And the, the again, the conversations are so intriguing, or the questions are so intriguing. But what are the, what is the significance of the 40 questions? I'd love to hear more about that. So that number 40 was an important number for me. So the questions really came from my therapeutic work. So mm-hmm. I was asking these questions of people in therapy. But yeah. then I started saying, well, let me, I, if I'm going to ask them, I should be asking myself these same questions. 
So yeah. I started to play with this. I would be in therapy. I would ask some of these questions. Then I would go away and think about them for myself. Yeah. So this is kind of, it was a back and forth. So I had more than 40, but we whittled it down because 40 is such an important space and number, whittled it down to those 40 that I thought most important for this first book. And you see, I say first because I hopefully there's more to come. Yeah. If you, once you read through the book, the book ends with a chapter on grace, mm. which is what I'd love to open the next book with, discussing grace, because I am a deep believer that we're pretty good as human beings with giving grace to others, but we're really horrible about giving grace to ourselves. That yeah. We have to find the ability to first understand what grace is and then apply it to ourselves. That if you, if you do something that I don't really like, I'll give you grace. I'll say, no, Debbie, it's okay. Don't worry about it. It's all right. But if, I'm, if I make a mistake with, in my world, I'll beat myself up. Yeah. Right? I'll, I'll go through this negative self-talk about how bad I am and how dumb I am and that was so stupid. But I also personify and, and use the, almost a metaphorical space there that if you took the negative self-talk that you have in your head, and you, uh, and you gave those words to someone else and they said them to you, mm. would you remain friends with that person? Yeah. The answer is probably not. So why would I then do that to myself? Why would I beat myself up like that if I wouldn't take that from someone else? I shouldn't take that from myself, right? So better understanding that we have these negative thoughts and that we can move that into a more positive realm um, is, is part of the work that I think is important. And it's what the book is about. Mm -hmm. Love that. I think it's a really beautiful invitation, even the concept of having conversations with yourself, because I don't think a lot of us have been taught how to have a healthy relationship with ourselves. And so one, I just, I have like a kind of really practical question of how do we do that? I'm really good at putting up a facade with other people. I'm really good at putting up a facade with myself and how do I actually get honest enough to answer and be in an authentic conversation with myself? Because it could be really easy to just be like, let me just know the, the answer that I know in my head, but maybe I haven't integrated and live out is yes. very different. There's a disconnect. So one of the things that I think is important is getting in the mirror of our lives, mm -hmm. not looking out the window of our lives so much. It's almost easy to look out the window of your life. And what I mean by that is this. I can look out the window of my life and I, and I could say, oh, my goodness, look at that group of people. They're so struggling. Good luck to them. I hope things get better. Mm -hmm. But then the mirror of my life is looking in the mirror saying, so what are you doing about that group that you just said was struggling? And stay in the mirror. Don't, right? We want to avoid the mirror because that man or woman in the mirror knows all about us. So we want to avoid it. We want to be avoiding of that because I don't want to be convicted by my own thoughts. But if I yeah. stay with that and I start to be curious about, all right, so what am I doing? Well, Corey, you're not really doing much. Yeah, we gave like a hundred bucks to that cause, but you could afford more. And, and actually you could get out and do some things in the community that would probably be much more helpful than that hundred dollars you gave. Yeah. I've now convicted myself. Now I'm left to do something about it. And I'm, yeah. I have to also be um, truthful with myself. There are going to be moments that I decide I'm not doing that. Even though I've yeah. convicted myself, I'm still not going to do it. But now I'm at least aware of it. I'm not, it's not at a level below consciousness. Now I'm conscious of it. 
right? And that came from that engagement in the mirror, that curiosity mm. in the mirror. So just that practicality of engaging, being curious with self in the mirror is a big space because we'll avoid that. We don't want to do that. Um, and if we can do it on a semi-consistent basis, um, I think it moves us in a, in a, in a better way. Whew, that's hard. Yeah. Are there practical applications that you encourage people to, to do to help them stay in the mirror? Yeah, I think one of the things that we, to stay in the mirror and to stay curious, I think, is if you can uncover some things early on. If I can uncover some truths about myself and do some comparative thought process with myself and have an aha moment, it's almost like, why would you stay in therapy? Well, because I got aha moments out of it. And I, it made me say, Jay, I didn't think about that. Wow. But if right. I, so if I can do that with myself, if I can stick with it long enough, build into my everyday process, because one thing about the mirror is you, most people have a mirror in their bathroom. And if you wake up, you're going to go to the bathroom. You're going to be in that space. Right. So it's not, so you can't avoid the fact that I should be in this mirror and I should be engaging myself. One thing that I do every day is I listen to Bill Withers' song, Lovely Day, every single morning. I love every that. Every single morning. And the song is, is really talking about that I'll look at this other person and I'll know that I'm going to have a lovely day. But I, I move that a little bit. I say that I look at myself and know that I'm going to have a lovely day. I know mm. it's not it's not in it's not dependent on anyone else for me to have a lovely day. And yeah. that means that I can be in the mirror. I smile at myself. It may sound silly. I get in the mirror. I listen to that song. I smile at myself every morning without fail, which is the beginning of a day that will be lovely. That doesn't mean that there won't be some struggles, but it's still going to be lovely. I'm still here. All right, I've been blessed to have another day that I can move through and learn from and experience pain that may tell me that I'm growing, that I think this is a process that we want to, we have to want to endeavor upon and no mm. one can force it. So no one no. can force you to get in the mirror every day. And if you don't choose to, that's your call. Uh, and no one can force that. Um, my hope is that the book will help and aid in bringing yeah. that process further. I love that. I uh, love that practical and I'm taking notes and I'm going to start doing it. <laughs> um, but I think so much of this process for me of mental health and emotional health and being on this journey and getting into therapy and choosing to do the work and however we want to describe that has been a choice to stay awake. Um, and I think of, I think it was William Wilberforce who said like, we can choose to look away, but we can never again say we didn't know. Mm. And I think once you start, you're like, okay, I've seen this in me. And we've turned on the light and we see everything going on and we can choose to continue to engage in it, continue to stay in the mirror, or we can choose to look away, yeah. but we can't pretend we don't know anymore once you started on this journey. So it's the concept of consciousness and awareness. Mm. Once you become conscious or aware of something, you never get to turn it off. It's there forever. Ugh. As much as you may not like it, you may, <laughs> may not want it. I don't even want it. I did not want to be aware of that. But yeah. now I am, and I can never forget it. I can never yeah. unsee that. I can never mm -hmm. unknow that. So once we move into a space of consciousness or awareness, we, we can't turn it off. So now that what that also means is I can still now make conscious movements that aren't great. But, yeah. now, but it's now not just happening at a level below consciousness. I'm now aware that I'm doing it. 
And I still may make some bad choices, but now I know it. So then at some point, I may be able to change that and say, you know what, now that I've become aware of this, I've still been making some bad choices in that space. I don't want to keep doing that. Mm. This, is in, this is important, Mackenzie, to what you just said, right? This is about consciousness and awareness. And that's what the yeah. work is about. Yeah, but you, so you, can't, you can't change something you're not aware of. And so that's I right. think it's an invitation. But it should come with a warning label. Like, you yes. can't unsee this. <laughs> you can't unsee it, right? Yes. Right. Yeah, yeah. One of the things in your book is that your mother taught you the importance of making a choice right. How is making a choice right different than the right choice? I think a lot of what we're talking about is like making a right choice and choosing something differently and all of that. So how does that play into this conversation as well? Yeah, I think there's a nuanced difference, but that nuance is humongous. I think that we get stuck and almost paralyzed in when we have a number of choices in front of us, like I've got to make the right choice. Yeah. It's almost paralyzing. I believe that we should go about our process of making good choices. But once we can make that choice, now it's my task to go about every day to make that choice the right one. Mm. So I then have to outwork my competition. I have to lean in with a level of passion about whatever that choice is that I've made. And now I will make that choice the right one. It's, not, mm. it's no longer up to chance. It is now about what I'll do and how hard I'll go uh, and, and work to get that choice to be the right one. So it's a nuanced difference, but I think it's a major difference. And, I, and recognizing and understanding that, I think, gives us uh, relief in yeah. terms of not being paralyzed about, oh, my God, I got to make the right choice. Which choice? Which choice? I think it, it relieves pressure around that issue. I really love that idea. Um, and it's also not standing on the sidelines of your own life. It's really, you know, jumping in and, and taking control of your own life in a different way and the, and the choices that we make. And then yeah. if it's not, you know, we always have the, the ability to make a different choice and to stand in that as well. So I love yeah. that. That's a really wonderful way of looking at that. Yeah, I like it. It sounds like you were surrounded by beautiful, powerful, insightful women. Come on, say that loud for the people in the back. What? Say that again and again. From my grandmother to my mother yes. to my wife. Yeah. They have and they and all of them across time have been have held the ability to see something in me that I did not see in myself. Mm. Right? So they had a set of lenses. Maybe that they shared. Maybe my grandmother passed them to my mom, and my mom has now passed them to my wife. But that lens that they, they're able to see me in a way that I can't see myself, and now I trust them. So I listen mm. when they say things, and I lean in, as, as opposed to leaning away or waiting to argue against why they say this, and oh, I'm going to argue my position, and this is why I'm not going to do it that way. I don't really do that anymore. I did. But I don't anymore. I kind of lean into. Now, that doesn't mean there are moments that I know I, my wife <laughs> and I don't argue because we right. have those moments. But anytime I hear her say things like, hey, so you may want to think about, have you thought about this? Mm-hmm. When I hear those words, have you thought about, as soon as I hear those words come out of her mouth, I tune in more deeply. Mm-hmm. Because she's probably going to give me something about myself yeah. that I didn't really, hadn't been paying attention to or that I need to hear more of. Um, so when I hear, have you thought about, hmm, I lean in. 
And I usually apply that wisdom into my everyday life. I love that. And I would imagine your sons do as well from both oh, of you. Which is, yes. Yeah. I mean, and then to have my mom living with us now, yeah. it's almost overload of wisdom. Like, okay, <laughs> I, can I take all this? I don't know what to do. What, when do I go to Detroit? When, yeah. when is my flight to Detroit so I can take a few days to, to breathe? Yeah, um, get away I, from but, all this. Yeah, yeah. I say that in jest, though. Yeah, they, mm-hmm. they, they do a great job. My kids uh, have been blessed with their mom and their grandmother much more than with I. I love uh, it. I love, and you have the wisdom to lean in to safe voices and, you know, like people in your life who, who carry that wisdom. I think that is probably a hard-earned uh, wisdom that you have. It's knowing yeah, which voices are safe. but It's what I talk about in the book is the creation of what I call a Supreme Court. That in our life, that we should have three to five people that we can turn to that will be truth tellers to us, especially when we have big moments or big decisions in front of us, that we would should first figure out what it is we think we want to do. And then we should go about asking those three to five people who are truth tellers what their opinion about us in that situation is. Because mm-hmm. if we think about and, and have an idea what we think, and then we listen to them. A pattern from that conversation will emerge yeah. that, we, that probably holds the answer to whatever it is that we're seeking. Right. Mm, yeah. That's so good. Well, Dr. Yeager, as we kind of wind down, uh, we are uh, the, called the Living Centered Podcast. And one of the questions we like to ask some of our guests is, what is a practice that keeps you centered? A practice that keeps me centered. Um, I talk about it in the book having a sacred space, that each of us should have a sacred space. And my sacred space, and I think it's different for everyone, is is a chocolate brown, huge, oversized leather chair that's centered in the middle of my living room, right outside of these doors. And if I can be in that space for any period of time, it centers me, right? We've had some really tough conversations with my family from me sitting there. We've had some beautiful news that came our way while I was sitting there. And many times I can check out of everything else and just kind of be still. Mm-hmm. I think that's one thing that we're not great at is finding the ability to be still, right? And I find stillness in that sacred space. So it centers me. Um, so it, And it recharges my batteries. So I seek to be in that space more often than not. Um, so that's one thing that centers me. That's awesome. I love that. And that sacred space can be really anywhere, I'm sure, outside. Anywhere. I've had people Mm -hmm. say that being on an airplane is their sacred space Mm. because no one knows them. They can be themselves, right? So, yeah, I think it's it's very individualized. So good. Well, thank you so much for uh, just sitting down with us and sharing a little bit of your expertise and your heart. Um, I'm really excited about your book, How Am I Doing? 40 Conversations to Have with Yourself. I think it is a really beautiful and approachable way to start the conversation with ourselves and get honest um, and pursue and be that better person that we want to be. So thank you so much for sitting with us. It was absolutely my pleasure. It was fun. I knew it would be, but it was more fun oh, than good. I anticipated. Thank you. Thank you for listening today and for committing valuable time to share space with these powerful stories. Make sure you hit subscribe to get all of our inspiring conversations with these incredible people delivered directly to you. And if you found this conversation particularly impactful, consider supporting the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.
When our emotional health is suffering, many of us begin to feel alone and overwhelmed. If you're in that place right now, we deeply encourage you to ask for help. If OnSite can support you in connecting the dots with one of our programs or other offerings, our admissions team would love to connect with you. Simply call 1-800-341-7432 or visit onsiteworkshops.com.